0: Welcome back to Me Kevin Report number 43. This has got to be the weirdest market yet. I'll tell you, oil down again, one and a quarter percent. But what's so weird is that over the last two days, that is Friday and today, the 10 year Treasury has plummeted again. We went as high as 4.08 percent on Thursday. Then on Friday, we lost about 11 bips, and today we lose another 6.4. I mean, look, that's fantastic for potentially uh, you know, loosening financial conditions such that maybe the stock market could do well, and maybe real estate will recover, but it's so odd because what pushed the head fake all the way up to 4.09 or 4.08, and all of a sudden that sell-off again? Who knows? Quite weird. <laughs> Even CNBC doesn't know. They're running a headline saying Treasury yields fall as investors prepare for key economic data. In, in other words, they have no freaking idea what's going on. And I'll tell you, that is pretty weird because Goldman Sachs and their financial conditions index plummeted a little bit over the last, uh, well, essentially trading day here, went from uh, uh, went run from a number of almost knocking on the door of a uh, hundred a point. Two, th- uh, two, seven, I'm back to about 99.96. That, that might not sound like a big uh, drop, but it's, it's a drop that brings us, it, it starts killing that major uptrend that we've been seeing. I'll show you really quick, just over the last few days here. Stand by, I'll show you the chart so you could just see it yourself. Uh, eh, eh, it's a little bit of a drop, but it shows you a change in direction over here, right? So uh, this right here is a February, right here is March. All of a sudden financial conditions softening a little bit. Now, obviously it's volatile, but we've been in this trend of straight up and all of a sudden we're getting this drop. And really most of this is because of uh, treasury yields in my opinion. Uh, But it's odd because this is happening at the same time as break-evens have reset substantially higher break-even inflation rate. Now, even there, there's an inflection point, but it's uh, super, super minor. And given the volatility of break-evens, this one probably means nothing in terms of an inflection point. But take a look at this chart. This is your five-year break-evens. And we regularly talk about this one, but what's remarkable here is you're going back to August in terms of, we haven't seen inflation worries this high since August. We exceeded the worries of October. Now, technically, if we exceed the worries of October, we should be trading lower in the market, right? But we're not. And that's, in my opinion, because this break-even isn't the only thing really driving the market either up or down. I really think, I've mentioned this a few times, but I think this sort of evidences it. It, it, to me, the fear is not that inflation sticks around a little bit higher for longer. I think the fear is that we go back to these sort of levels of break-evens or even substantially even higher. And that's where Paul Volcker comes out, right? If we get these levels or more, we get Paul Volcker. All this crap over here doesn't matter. This is all just, all right, whatever, inflation will be sticky for a little bit longer. But I'll tell you, the market is pretty volatile uh, in uh, leading into this data over here. Uh, just uh, with, with drama we saw last week of yields skyrocketing as much as they did uh, and uh, and financial conditions tightening and now all of a sudden they're U-turning. The market doesn't know what the hell it wants to do. <laughs> and that's okay. I mean, quite frankly, I think everybody's trying to figure out what's going on in the world. Uh, and uh, that's part of why uh, there's so much uh, sort of uh, uncertainty in the market, if you will. Uh, but that's Okay. Uh, now, we'll talk about what Morgan Stanley and uh, some other of the investment banks think about what's going on. We'll, we'll jump into that in a moment. But I want to start with what's going on over in Florida, uh, because I think it's a little interesting, especially since we get a little taste of Florida here in California. So let's uh, do a little touch on that. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, do pay attention to those rates, because the rates and the break-evens, I think those are what's uh, driving the market right now. All right, so uh, let's jump into here. All right. So the next president of the United States might come from Florida. We gotta talk a little bit about Ron DeSantis, but also there's a bill now apparently in Florida's legislature that might end up banning bloggers unless they register with the state if they even so much as mention politicians or the governor. Now, Twitter is generally a terrible place for actually getting a deep information on what's going on, but Mr. Newt Gingrich, Gingrich was trending yesterday uh, here for his tweet where he wrote, The idea that bloggers criticizing a politician should register with the government is insane. It is an embarrassment that it is a Republican state legislator in, uh, legislature in Florida, legislator in Florida who introduced the bill to that effect. He should withdraw it immediately. And then, of course, there's a lot of uh, lashing out against Newt Gingrich, a lot of people saying things like, hey, well, you're the reason uh, that uh, the Republican Party is like this, and you should take responsibility. You're basically embarrassed to yourself. You get a lot of that sort of drama. So what what I like to do is I like to go right to the source, and I think that's often, actually almost always, what's missing from Twitter. Uh, yeah, so jumping right into the source, and then we'll talk about what Mr. DeSantis is up to. Take a look at this. There actually is a bill, and it's called the Act Relating to Information Dissemination. And basically, it would require bloggers to register with the Office of Legislative Services or the Commission of Ethics, requiring bloggers file monthly reports with the appropriate office by a certain date. Now, there's some details here that suggest, basically, if you're a blogger who gets paid, you're required to, to register. So, they define here what a blogger is, someone who frequently updates uh, opinion, commentary, or business content. A blogger means any person who submits a blog post, which is published. Okay, great. And it has to be for compensation. But this is pretty broad here. Compensation includes anything of value provided to the blogger in exchange for a blog post or series of blog posts. Now, that's really interesting because, I mean, in theory, you could say making a YouTube video is for compensation, right, because you get ad revenue. You post an article on the Medium, you get ad revenue. Now, YouTube didn't go to me or the Medium doesn't go to people and say, please make an article or a video about DeSantis and then we'll pay you, right? So this is a pretty vaguely written bill because it doesn't clarify that, and it could potentially mean anyone, and obviously, technically, Florida only has jurisdiction over Florida, but they don't say, if you don't reside in Florida, you're exempt from this. Now, obviously, the reach of their power, their policing power would not exceed past Florida, but what if, what if you make videos about DeSantis in California, and then you go visit Florida? you know, are you now going to get fined because, because you're, you're somebody who has blogged and not reported potentially in Florida's well? It's sort of interesting. And so it's, it's raising a lot of eyebrows about the idea that, hey, like, if compensation is so broad, what you're basically saying is anybody who even talks about state uh, uh, representatives uh, or the governor needs to register with the state of Florida. And it's really starting to feel a little sort of anti-free-speech-esque, which is really odd because generally it's been the Republican Party over the last few years who's been sort of clamoring for for free speech. Uh, and, and while I don't think anybody really is anti-free speech, the, the big divisiveness of on one side it's, hey, we got to control this and misinformation, right? And on the other side, it's no, just let everything free, everything be free, right? That's been a pretty political uh, and uh, politically divisive talking point. And so the idea that Ron DeSantis' government, eh, who's potentially going to do whatever he needs to get done over this next year, at least that's what sort of researchers, political researchers are saying, that Florida's legislature basically wants to prop up Ron DeSantis to potentially become governor because it would be good for all of the people in the legislature if he becomes president. He might pick from that legislature to to uh, have, have sort of a, a cabinet or build out a cabinet if he were to become uh, president. So it's really interesting that... Uh, you've got, on one hand, a lot of this talk about free speech, but now you're basically censoring free speech by forcing monthly reports on people for any basically reason for posting a blog, simply if you comment on the governor or represented that, that That seems a little odd. Uh, at the same time, you have Ron DeSantis who just visited, and this comes after CPAC, by the way, which was this weekend, where uh, Donald Trump won sort of the straw poll, but, but uh, you know that somewhat seemed uh, to be a little bit more uh, of a Trump-attended event. Ron DeSantis wasn't there. Instead, Ron DeSantis was actually in California. He was actually in my home county here in Simi Valley, and I thought that was very interesting. Uh, Ron DeSantis went to the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, sold about 1,300 tickets. And he talked about this great American exodus from states governed by leftist politicians and how people are voting with their feet. I mean, this is old news. We've been using that phrase for, you know, since, for, well, probably for decades, quite frankly, but but really heavily since the pandemic. It's hard to argue though that, you know, people are solely voting with their feet because of politics. California has gotten really expensive. And in part because, you know, California is really beautiful in terms of like physically, uh, you know, people are awesome, the weather's cool, but the politicians are loony, okay? So we know that. Well, but uh, the Wall Street Journal, for example, alleges, nah, there's probably a good chance people are leaving California, the ones who are, because of a lack of affordable housing and hybrid work setups that really allow you to go from like a three and two here to like a six-bedroom mansion in Texas uh, or even Florida, right? Uh, so, but anyway, Ron DeSantis uh, at, at his event in Simi, uh, Simi Valley talked about, of course, having empowered people uh, to make a choice as to whether or not they want to take the vaccine, not enforcing mandates. And this is interesting because early in the pandemic, Ron DeSantis was actually a big proponent of getting vaccinated, but now he's sort of trying to back that away by saying, hey, but I was super anti-mandate and my schools were open over here, right? And the Washington Post interviewed some attendees at the event uh, who described themselves as Trumpers, but they responded and said, you know, Ron DeSantis seems like Trump, but less divisive and potentially with a brain. Now, I thought that maybe that obviously that was potentially, you know, (laughs) they picked that one quote because it's a little extreme. Uh, But but this idea that maybe Ron DeSantis would be like the diet version of Donald Trump and maybe a little less divisive is really interesting because, uh, you know, it does seem like there's a chance you'll have a Ron DeSantis v. Trump primary and then on the other side, you might have, if, if Biden runs, you'll probably just have Biden. If Biden doesn't run, you'll probably have, like, a Newsom slash combo runoff, so, so we'll see. Uh, but anyway, you know, what's also very interesting and it kind of goes back to sort of how this is all piecing together, is Ron DeSantis is trying to create the narrative of everyone fleeing California, which again, to some regards is true. But on the other hand, it's really pro-free speech, while you see at the same time also this sort of almost anti-free speech-ish bill in Florida. But it's not just that, it's also what's going on with Disney and how Disney is kind of being used as a pawn here for DeSantis's efforts. So here's actually an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal by the man himself, Ron DeSantis himself. And uh, he talks about how on Monday he signed a law ending Disney's self-governing status of over 43 square miles. Disney no longer has its own government. And and, and really, this is starting to make people reiterate the idea that, man, on one hand, Ron DeSantis is all like, hey, free speech, free speech, free speech. But then why is your legislature putting together something that kind of potentially restricts free speech requiring this registration? It's basically burden, right? When you put a burden on speech, you essentially restrict it. It's kind of like, hey, y- you know what? We-, we want you to put these gloves on while you're writing your paper. It's just another step. We're not stopping you from writing, but we want you to go through another step. And if the more steps we put on you, then the more inconvenient it is, the less likely you produce content, right? That's usually how it works. So it's it's not really eliminating the opportunity to speak, but it is restricting that somewhat. And a lot of this drama we're seeing about Disney is also about free speech. See, Disney, and, and they don't, Ron DeSantis obviously talks about this in here, and I'll go a little bit into more depth, but basically, he talks about how, hey, look, uh, if you go woke, go broke. Go to Florida, uh, and, and wokeness dies. Like, Florida is the place where wokeness goes to die, is essentially what uh, Ron DeSantis argues. And uh, he says it here, we are making Florida the state where the economy flourishes because we are the state where woke goes to die. And he makes this argument that corporations should not involve themselves in politics. And that basically Disney uh, ended up, uh, you know, challenging this idea uh, that, uh, that Florida was going to Put up the essentially don't say gay bill now that phrase is not actually in the bill it's just how everybody knows it that's the politically popular way of talking about it and it basically says hey we don't want sexual education for people under a certain age children under a certain age like five-year-olds shouldn't be talked to about basically sexual education or gender orientation or gender identity and disney had long been silent on that uh but uh, uh, generally what you find is silence these days in 2023 is deemed to be sort of permission Uh, And so this is where Ron DeSantis argues, look, they took a stand, they took a stand that was anti my bill and now we're punishing them for that. Now, in my opinion, that's somewhat slamming Disney uh, from a free speech point of view, right? Like if corporations are uh, allowed to have a voice, which they are allowed to have a voice, obviously, then then they should be able to speak freely without fear of punishment. The idea that that then, uh, you know, potentially Ron DeSantis starts restricting rights from Disney, I think is somewhat interesting because it basically sends a signal to any business in Florida, hey, if you don't align with our policies, we'll find a way to screw you. Now, whether or not you agree with the don't say gay does not matter here. Like, don't get me wrong, I got a five and seven year old and they don't need to hear about gender identity or gay or, 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 or anything. They're way too young for that, okay? Five and seven-year-old, no, okay? Let's wait until like at least fifth grade, please, or like middle school, uh, or, you know, high school, obviously, that's fine, but, but, but like young children, no. Uh, so, so again, I'm, I'm not making a, a, a stand here that Ron DeSantis and the Don't Say Gay Bill is wrong or right, it's not the case at all. If anything, it, I think it makes a lot of sense. But the idea that DeSantis is sort of building his campaign on, to some degree, silencing some form of speech in my opinion, sort of runs counter to the Republican ideal of no, 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 all free speech, right? Because in essence, you're trying to restrict bloggers, and in essence, you are trying to restrict businesses from taking a stand. Now, of course, you might say, oh, well, Disney has no place to be taking a stand. But wait, isn't that restricting free speech, right? So, uh, now, what I also think is very interesting, is Ron DeSantis goes on to say the following here. Disney's special arrangement, which dates back to 1967, was an indefensible example of corporate welfare. Now, this I think is remarkable. Indefensible example of corporate welfare. I'll let him keep going and then I'll respond to that. It provided the company with favorable tax treatment, including the ability to assess its own property valuations and enjoy benefits of regional infrastructure improvements without paying taxes towards the project. It exempted Disney from Florida's building and fire prevention codes. It even allowed Disney to build a nuclear power plant and to use eminent domain to seize property outside the district's boundaries. While the districts are common in Florida, Disney's deal was conspicuous in the massive benefits it conferred. Okay. So first of all, it's really worth understanding what happened here. Okay. Because this right here makes it sound like DeSantis is coming in on a, on, you know, basically a white horse and saying, how dare Disney wield all this power? We will take it back. But you have to remember what Orlando was before 1967. Folks, it was nothing. It was swampland. That's it. In fact, much of Florida still today is swamp. And that's not a diss on Florida. I spent 16 years growing up in Florida. I love Florida. I'll actually be at Florida later this week. But this idea that, oh, uh, you know, it, you know, we got to take back all that was given to Disney. Disney created Orlando. Disney built its own fire department, police station. It built its uh, the parks. And this idea that Disney used its eminent domain to seize private property. Let's hold on for a moment. Disney's eminent domain power actually led Disney to preserve a lot of the natural forestry that's around Disney, because they wanted that on purpose to make the whole Disney World area feel as sort of natural as possible. Now, don't get me wrong. Yeah, there are going to be cases where certain land was transformed into potentially a parking lot. Duh, but then again, it was all a swamp. But when you go to Disney World, or even you fly into Orlando, you're like, damn, a lot of trees over here. It's not like Disney leveled everything. Also, this idea that Disney, uh, you know, was allowed to build a nuclear reactor, that's true because Disney takes a lot of power, but they never ended up building their own nuclear reactor. And even if they did, that would be better than what we have today, which is a natural gas power plant instead of a nuclear reactor. Now, Florida does have its own nuclear reactors, which is great, but remember what Disney was supposed to be. Disney was supposed to be the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. That stands for Epcot, right? It was supposed to be a futuristic city that would be home to 20,000 residents in an area that there never, ne- never used to be people. So uh, Disney World needed to move fast. They needed to build roads, emergency services, utilities. Disney did that. They built the levees. They built the drainage system. Yes. Did other parts of Florida end up hooking up to those projects and benefit from that economic impact? Of course. But Ron DeSantis, I mean, we got to look at the numbers. I wrote down some of them over here. Disney is, Disney's a huge part of of Florida. I mean, look at Oxford uh, Oxford economics. I used before the pandemic, just because some of the 2022 numbers aren't available uh, yet. And if you go into 21 and 2020, things are very skewed by the pandemic. So I just wanted to look at 2019, since we're likely to trend back to that trend, as most things are in business. But look at 2019. Disney World had a $75.2 billion economic impact on Florida. Florida's GDP is just under $1 trillion. Uh, that means uh, uh, Disney World itself sets up about 7.7% of Florida's entire GDP. 4.5% of the people who work in Florida work for Disney World or, or somehow employed as a contractor by Disney or work for Disney in, in, in some regard. And $5.8 billion of Florida's tax revenue or 15.9% comes from Disney World. So I find it really interesting and, and I kind of have a, a, a conclusion to all of this. So so first of all, you have this the this, uh, uh, you know, speech bill, right? Restricting uh, speech in Florida. Then you have this sort of Disney removing, uh, basically their policing powers, which policing powers include building and safety and, and infrastructure and everything, blah, 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 right? So you have the speech bill, then you have Disney. Uh, then you have this idea of uh, woke goes to die in Florida. So m- my take on this, my take, Uh, is that right now in society, we do have a very split United States right now. On one hand, we have this idea that uh, everything has turned woke, although the idea of woke has really become extreme, right? Woke used to just be awareness, right? It used to be Uh, aware. So you were sort of aware maybe of privileges or differences, right? This has now gone to the extreme, right? So there's the extreme version, and then there's sort of the the normal version of this. Uh, And then what you have happening in Florida is really you've gone to the uh, anti-woke extreme, And so that's really the fight of what I think is the 2024 election and what we're gonna see a lot of. You're gonna basically have an argument of the extreme versus the extreme. Now, personally, I hate that because I think the vast majority of Americans sort of sit in the middle like, yeah, look, some things over here make sense. Some things over here make sense. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. And I personally think that Disney and the speech bill have really just sort of become pawns to the idea of reiterating this extreme, uh, because that seems to be what's probably most popular for Republican uh, candidates right now. And so I don't actually think anything practically is going to change at Disney. In fact, Disney World Florida has a board that controls the sort of the Reedy Creek district, and Ron DeSantis can now sort of put his puppets on that board. But the reality is Florida probably, uh, or, or Disney World, kind of has already built out what they're going to build out right now that's not to say that won't they won't want to continue to develop but like these special powers really mattered when they were going from swamp to something now it doesn't matter so much anymore so in my opinion both of these things aren't really going to change anything they're just examples of what DeSantis is trying to use to build up his platform to really fight donald trump so I think that's very interesting. Uh, you know, somebody here, uh, pet Brett says anti-woke equals, let me continue being a, a bigot. No, I, I don't agree with that. You know, I, I think if, if somebody, w- I mean, like maybe we say the, uh, anti-extreme would be the more, the better way to put that, right? Like, I don't think somebody is a bigot for saying, I don't want my five-year-old uh, to be taught about gender identity, right? I, I don't think that's, uh, being a bigot, I think that's you know trying to be reasonable. But of course, we could go down the spectrum and go well. At some point, uh, we probably all agree with things. You know, it's it's funny. Like I, I I'll have uh, I'll have a, a drink with people of totally random and, and totally different political ideologies. You know, extreme uh, people on on like the super super far left or the super far right or super libertarian or or whatever. And I'll tell you, we we usually even though people identify as potentially super one thing, most people are relatively reasonable. (laughs) It's surprising. I'm not saying everyone. Don't get me wrong, right? Uh, But uh, it it is really, really interesting. I I think that's fascinating. So uh, this election cycle is going to be incredible. Somebody here says, Kevin contradicts himself. He says that this is an example of anti-woke extremism in one breath and then says won't really matter in the big picture. How is that? Okay, so what I'm saying is Uh, so i'm not contradicting myself actually you're just reiterating what i'm saying what i'm saying is anti-woke extremism is punishing disney's free speech and taking away uh uh, their policing powers really that's that's the way it's being put up on a pedestal oh you go woke you go broke. but the reality is this probably isn't going to affect disney at all in fact, I would not be surprised if Ron DeSantis picked up the phone, talked to Bob Iger, who just took over a CEO again, said, "Look, man, I'm gonna put some puppets in. You guys just keep doing you, but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go use this as a political tool to show everybody that you don't mess with Ron DeSantis." <laughs> you know, that's what I'm saying. So, uh, so maybe there was just a misunderstanding in how I explained that, but uh, you know, I, I don't think. Uh, uh, I, I think it's almost a little bit like. Uh, Florida-style virtue signaling, dare I say, right? Like, it's not really going to make a difference to Disney World, but it it does help a sort of prop up his camera. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't dis. I wanna be very clear here because sometimes I make these, these videos and people think, oh, so you hate DeSantis. No, <laughs> it's not what I'm saying. Like personally, from what I'm seeing, I would probably much prefer a DeSantis over like a Gavin Newsom who gives stimulus checks during an inflationary era and can't save homeless people or, or contribute to mental health for the life of them and doesn't seem to care about financial education in schools. In fact, Rod DeSantis passed, was one of the first states and one of the first governors to pass a bill demand requiring financial fitness, basically, financial education in schools. That's something that I ran a campaign on for governor in 2020. So completely agree, by the way. I think, so I think it's very, very interesting. Uh, very, very interesting and uh, definitely worth talking about. So uh, those are some of my thoughts. But hey, I'll look for your thoughts in the comments. Somebody here writes, people are factophobic. <laughs> well, that's honestly, I think you watching videos on Twitter is extremely smart. Like, like me or hate me, you watching videos on, uh, if I said Twitter, I meant YouTube. You watching videos on YouTube is extremely smart because this is where you can actually have more of a dialogue and get deeper into topics. Whereas on Twitter, I mean, go go back to what we saw with the the Newt Gingrich stuff or whatever. The, the, the stuff is just extreme, like absolutely extreme. People, like the, the messaging doesn't really tell you anything about what's going on. Right. I mean, we just made, you know, a 10, 15 minute segment here on Florida politics where Newt makes one comment and and people bash him like crazy. Uh, and nobody actually knows what's going on. (laughs) Right. So I I'm a big fan of that sort of perspective, but, uh, you have to sort of seek that out. Otherwise you kind of stay, uh, you you stay uninformed. Okay, let's uh, take a quick peek at the pre-market here and then we got some more things to cover. So yeah, wow, bonds still sitting at 3.91. It's incredible. Uh, You do have what looks like futures slightly positive, uh, barely positive. NASDAQ's definitely outpacing at about uh, 0.4% to the upside. Mm. All right, let's see here. Bitcoin sitting at 22.4, Trade Desk up about one two four in pre-market. Tesla's up about 0.51 pre-market here. We have uh, Luminar up seven, CrowdStrike up five. Interesting. Okay. And no, no huge moves here. Some moves on some cannabis stocks moving down, ASML down another 1.75. All right. So next topic for us to discuss. Uh, Oh, by the way, I have to say the uh, Chris Rock uh, special pretty funny. You got to give it to him. We're pretty funny. I love his comments on, uh, uh, like probably my favorite line, especially since I was just bagging kind of on like Twitter. He goes, I feel something to the effect of, I feel bad for the people who sit around all day long trying to come up with woke tweets every day because they're full of shit. <laughs> that's what, that's a Chris Rock quote there. Uh, so really good, uh, really, really good piece. I thought that was fascinating. He was in Baltimore for that live Netflix special pretty neat. Uh, okay. So, uh, now we've got to talk about uh, the rally mode, rally, rally, rally mode. I thought this was very interesting. So let's see here. Morgan Stanley is a flip-flopping. I would have not expected this and not at all, but Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson, the mega bear. Okay. Remember he's the guy who says stocks are going to hell. The recession's gonna st- suck. It's going to be way worse than you expect. And basically, anybody who's a bull right now is essentially sucking air on Mount Everest, which is so oxygen depleted that clearly you're getting delusional because you're not able to think clearly because obviously the stock market's going down. That's been Mike Wilson's argument. And I remember I made a video about that Mount Everest piece that he put out, and I thought it was so ludicrous, I thought to myself, holy smokes, the bears are getting delusional. In other words, the bears are starting to run out of crap to say about this economy. Because the reality is, the consumers and businesses have a lot more money than anybody previously thought. And it's lasting a whole lot longer than anybody ever thought it would. So yes, while things are trending bad, we seem to have more fuel in the gas to keep this plane flying for a lot longer than we thought. A lot more fuel in the gas tank. Uh, Which would essentially coincide with this idea of, well, maybe the plane doesn't have to land yet and maybe we can be patient in getting inflation down before markets actually go into that sort of Mike Wilson recession. But anyway, my opinion aside... Mike Wilson actually just changed his tune a little bit, and I'd like to read you a quote. Take a listen to this. Equity markets survived a crucial test of support last week that suggests this bear market rally is not ready to end yet. He specifically pointed out the SPY basically bouncing off of the SMA 200 line, which you could see that specifically here. We've talked about it many a time before, but here's your SMA. Uh, 200 line, your simple daily moving average. And that 200 daily moving average showed you support at about 390. We ended up getting to a low of about 392 before bouncing off and closing at about 401. Pretty, uh, pretty, pretty dramatic, uh, moves we've seen over here. Uh, anywho, I mean, boy, that is actually pretty dramatic. I mean, if you had a low of 392 and you ended up closing at 401, what is that? Uh, 401 divided by 392 okay, yeah, it's about a 2.2% swing from from previous low to to next day close. That's not even next day high, which was 404. That's more like a 3, 3.5%. That's remarkable. But anyway, Mike Wilson is now calling this a short-term pivot. He does, however, still reiterate that once the fundamentals deteriorate, then the real pain will come. He says this doesn't change the, quote, very poor risk reward ratio currently offered by many stocks, given valuations and earnings forecasts that remain way too high. In other words, Mike Wilson is saying, look, people are just going to run out of money. People are going to have money for, for, uh, to sustain earnings anymore. And then earnings are going to disappoint. Margins are going to disappoint. And you're going to have a pretty nasty crash and that the real pain is still ahead of us. That's the Mike Wilson point. Now he says, the gap between reported earnings and cash flow is the widest that it's been in 25 years, driven by excess inventory and capitalized costs that have yet to be reflected in earnings per share. So in other words, when you spend a bunch of money, but you capitalize it, you basically spread the expenses over time. And so when those spread expenses hit in the future, when people finally stop spending as much money we're going to hell is basically what mike wilson's trying to say and now he's trying to hedge his argument that everything's going to hell by basically saying okay well fine maybe maybe the rally will last a little bit longer but don't worry the bear market's coming i promise now i think that's really interesting because Yeah, they've they've been, you know, Mike Wilson has been sort of a a bear uh, for quite a while. Now, he was right about, uh, uh, you know, the bearishness that we saw last year. But then again, every bear was right last year. At one point, I spent two months as a bear. I posted pictures of me skiing uh, 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 last January. And it was basically just a picture of a bear with skis on the ski lift, all alone. A very sad, lonely bear. (laughs) Uh, but what I always like to do is I try to look at, uh, some of the other information that we're getting from other analysts, specifically, even within Mike, uh, within Morgan Stanley. I personally wonder if all these people at Morgan Stanley are in the same office and they've like put Mike Wilson in a corner. And then you've got like the level headed people on the main floor that are kind of like, there's Mike again, ah, poor Mike. Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And, and who knows? Maybe he'll end up being Right. But here's yet another piece from Morgan Stanley, which is basically the opposite. Uh, And what I thought was interesting about this one, and I, I try to read everything, right? I try to read the bear case, and I try to read the bull case. And when I hear the bears arguing that, don't worry, the pain will come, and you must be on Mount Everest because the oxygen's getting thin, it makes me think like, dude, you're running out of facts. And when you're running out of facts to support the bear case, the bear case is going to go away. Like so far, people and businesses still have lots of money, and and I think that's the big thing that everyone is missing. Is just want to just grab them by the shoulders and go. People have too so much money. Now, on one hand, that could be really bad because we could actually confirm a meaningful reacceleration of inflation. Right? If in January, if the January numbers uh, reaccelerate in, in or continue to prove a uh, reacceleration here in in February with the data we're getting in March, we're screwed. Mark, Mike Wilson's going to be right then, okay? In, in fact, look, you already know this, right? You already know that coming up, we have a jobs report on the 10th, we got CPI on the 14th, and then we get the Fed on the 22nd. You already know this. But something that we haven't talked about before is that you should not pay attention specifically to those reports. You know what you want to pay attention to? You want to pay attention to the following. The revisions. I want you to look at the January revisions when this data comes out. Pay attention to the January revisions, because here's the best case scenario, in my opinion. Best case. Best case. We get the FEB data. The FEB data comes in slightly soft, okay? I mean, the, the softer it is, obviously, the better. But you want the Fed data to come in soft. But then you want the JAN data to be revised down, because the JAN data was so ridiculous with seasonal adjustments, I'm really hoping for a revision down. Now, I just want to be really clear here before I keep going through this Morgan Stanley piece. If the data for January gets revised down and you get soft February data, I think we break through the next levels of support on the retracement levels for everything. Bitcoin, SPY, tech, Tesla. I don't care what you're investing in. AMC, You know, it's not my fault if you want to invest in bankrupt, I mean, uh, in AMC. Uh, You know, like, it's all going up. Uh, That would be great. So, revisions. Pay attention to those. Really, really important. But what's Morgan Stanley saying over here? So, Morgan Stanley suggests that, hey, in the coming weeks, we'll get more data. Duh, we know that. But Morgan Stanley believes right now that the Fed will only require two more price hikes or, or interest rate hikes. Now that's interesting because we've really been talking about this idea of maybe a pause after March until that January data came out. After that January data came out, everybody's like, oh crap. Yep. We're going to end up seeing rates go up higher for longer. And so now we're pricing in that uh, that hike in, um, in May as well. In fact, if we look at futures pricing, we're about a 71% chance of getting a 25 BP hike. Oh, wow, that's actually bullish. Uh, and a, uh, a 28% chance of a 50 BP hike. Now, I think that's ludicrous. I think there's almost no chance we get a 50 BP hike, unless, of course, the data comes in like terribly bad. The data would have to be so, so bad for jobs and CPI to get a 50 because it would just shoot the Fed's credibility in the foot for what they have left. Uh, and then when we look at May, we're looking at probably a somewhere between a... Uh, it's about a 90... 95% chance that we're gonna be up at five and a quarter to five and a half. So yeah, it's actually closer to like 97%. But anyway, pretty pretty much a foregone conclusion that by May, we're gonna be at five and a quarter on the low end and uh, 5.5 on the higher end. That's that's essentially a foregone conclusion, right? Uh, so, but anyway, what do we have here? So they talk about after these two more cuts, they think the Fed will pause. So they're setting this up to say that, okay, June pause, and then March of, t- of next year, that's when they actually think you get your first cut and you're gonna start seeing 25 BP hikes or cuts rather. Now this is pretty far out. So what we've noticed is that everything has taken a lot longer than expected, unfortunately. Uh, and patience is really, really important in this sort of market. But if this ends up playing out uh, the way it's expected here, as long as people continue to have money to spend between now and then, yeah, it, 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 we could be okay. In, in a crazy way, we could be okay to sustain this economy out of a recession. It would be, I'll tell you, it, it like fate loves irony, as Elon Musk always says, it would be the most ironic thing to see that the most predicted recession and the steepest hiking cycle in, in 40 years does not end up turning into a recession. Uh, I, that, uh, Jerome Powell will go down as an absolute hero. Now I've also been reading some Fed papers and it's important to, to remember because some people keep talking to me about like, oh, the Fed's definitely going to rug pull us. And I'm like, I don't know, man, the Fed is pretty acutely aware of, uh, of the pain that their activity causes. In fact, let me get to the conclusion on this paper. I was just reading this this morning here. Look at this. My favorite line was actually right here where they said, Such policies, uh, in in other words, if you, okay, so they talk about keeping rates for too low, for too long, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, if if you create the risks of financial crises, uh, then you want to avoid creating the risks of financial crises because of the social, political, and economic costs that come with them. And I thought that was fascinating because it really shows sort of the Fed's awareness. This is a Fed paper, by the way. It shows the Fed's uh, awareness of, of look, you know, if you tighten too hard, people lose their jobs, people go bankrupt, you ruin businesses that potentially could have otherwise thrived. So you really impact humans, uh, you, you create misery and depression and increase suicides, right? Like it's terrible to put people through a, a, a nasty recession, right? This is the Fed themselves does not want to have to pull Volcker us because the costs are too high. It also hurts our standing of, of the U.S. dollar, and then, and of course, it hurts the long-term economic um, uh, prosperity of America as well. Anywho, continuing on here, Fed has made less progress towards disinflation than previously thought. For any additional insight into the May meeting, we would need to see the evidence that the reacceleration is real. This is basically saying, look, for us to even remotely think we're going to end up getting uh, 50 BP, we're going to have to somehow prove that, oh yeah, everything's re-accelerating. And even if you look at Costco's earnings call from the second, you're not, look, you're obviously seeing that prices have gone up, uh, but uh, they're not meaningfully continuing. In fact, most companies, even Costco, aren't talking about more future uh, you know, hikes for wages. Instead, what are they talking about? They're talking about autonomy and efficiency. I'll just read it to you because I'm not gonna. Ma- I'm not making this up. Look at this. Notwithstanding the two to three off-season wage increases we had over the last fifteen months, uh, we are, are, uh, which has impacted some slight deleverage. Deleverage basically. Uh, this gets a little complicated. Deleverage means basically their opex uh, and their cost of goods sold went up a little bit higher than the rate that revenue increased. So, notwithstanding this information given that we've only slightly deleveraged is actually pretty impressive, given that labor is our biggest expense. So then what do they talk about? They don't talk about more wage increases. Instead, they talk about it's our productivity. We're getting better at productivity. And then over here, you have an analyst that's saying, so if compensation is rising 6% and inflation, like nominal prices are going up 6% for goods, but traffic is only up 3%, then that means you should be seeing revenues down 3%, right? He's basically saying 6 and 6 with offset by 3 should be a negative 3, right? And they're responding, well, people are spending more money on more expensive things, so not necessarily. Uh, In other words, not simply price inflation, it's mix. Now, mix is a really important phrase to remember when you're talking about finance because it's basically saying people are buying higher margin items at Costco rather than somewhere else. So that's good. That's a benefit to Costco. That actually shows some level of pricing power that can increase average selling prices. They're not actually just talking about uh, increasing prices. In fact, when they're asked about the elasticity of price, they say, well, we don't really analyze price elasticity. We basically just focus on this. If we lower prices, we do more sales. So, I think it's really interesting because if, if you go through the earnings call, and, and I'm just going to sum it up because it's a little arcane, but if I make it simple, the simplest way to put it is Costco is telling you, in my opinion, basically the same thing that almost every other company is. They're telling you, look, yeah, we had to raise prices, but you know what we're doing now? We're focusing on the fact that if we want more revenue, we could lower prices. If we want more margin, we focus on productivity and automating. That's really what you're seeing at almost every single company that I've been analyzing. I'm trying to find where that uh, automate. Here it is. Oh, found it. Look at this. Uh, so inflation has gone up. We know that. It's gone up in the past. We know that. And I think the focus now, this is important now, what are they focus on? Is trying to figure out how to do things more efficiently. One of the things we do religiously every four weeks at the budget meeting is the operators are talking about certain focus items, whether it's improving overtime hours, in other words, cutting those, uh, or things we've done to automate something physically, improving the flow of goods in the warehouse. So what is pretty much everyone talking about? Everyone's talking about efficiency, automating, becoming more productive. That's what everyone's talking about nobody's talking about, hey, we still got a lot more, uh, you know, wage inflation to pass on. We still got a lot more price increases ahead of us. And if anything, they were like, yeah, like if we want to increase revenue, we could just cut prices. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in my opinion, that's actually very bullish. And, and that's it's very bullish because it shows, even though we're going to go through some volatile hell over the next bit here, it's very bullish because the last thing you want is evidence that companies are starting to make you think Paul Volcker's coming, right? Uh, This is stuff we look at almost on a daily basis in our course member live streams when we do fundamental analysis. We try to understand what kind of pricing power do companies have. I encourage you to join those, by the way. Any of the programs comes with lifetime access to uh, the uh, course member live streams. But anyway, to me, this is fantastic. Uh, This is very good. Uh, It's also fantastic that uh, Goldman Sachs, for the first time ever, has just turned bullish on Apple saying it has a 32% upside from here, $199 price target. Uh, they talk about Apple's widening and increasing install base, basically leading to this moat of people not leaving Apple. Uh, and uh, really, the more people they Venus flytrap in, the better. That was pretty interesting. So uh, we'll see, we'll see. Uh, but uh, pretty excited about that, uh, you know. I know, uh, I know. Some people here uh, say things like Paul Volcker can't save us either. <laughs> I, I mean, what I always respond to stuff like this is, hey, uh, what evidence do you have? Like, where, 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 where is the bad? Because I'm, I'm looking for it. And people send it to me, and then I make a video on it explaining how what they think is bad is actually not that bad. <laughs> you know, That's all—it's that's all like usually the bear argument is, well, but 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 prices are still up like ten percent. I'm like, yeah, no shit. That's how inflation works. Stuff gets more expensive. Done. You know, like uh, it's it, what's what matters is the stickiness of that, right? So, mm-hmm. Someone here writes, Costco croissants are so good. Wow. Yeah, you, you mean like a, in those, the white clamshells that were the clear clamshells where you kind of get like that giant box, right? Sup, investment joy. Sup, man. Investment joy. I love this guy. Uh, I, I got to come back to Chillicothe and visit you. Super curious what happens if rates hold with 32 trillion debt. You can't tax your way out of a $1 trillion debt service. Yeah, here's here's the, and it's it's totally understandable because central banks are losing money like hand over fist right now because the yields they're getting on their investments are substantially lower than what they're having to pay out in the overnight repo facility. And really what happens is that's where politicians sort of just basically write a blank check to, to print more money and offset those losses. Now, that sounds ironic because it's sort of like, hey, but if you print more money, doesn't that create more inflation? Not necessarily if that money isn't being then circulated through the economy, if it's just going to sort of potentially pay off this deficit that the Fed has created. Uh, And and the idea there is, well, well, well then won't people lose trust in the institution of America? Well, yeah, eventually. I mean, at some point in the long term, every currency generally tends to go to zero because its government loses power and, and trust. But in the near term, I don't think it's likely that that's actually something that's going to, you know, sort of destroy our economy. I, th- I think uh, people, have, uh, people are so much better off today in, in, in aggregate, not everyone, obviously, uh, than they were before the pandemic, that, uh, that, that really, uh, once we get back to a normalized economy, I don't think that uh, markets will terribly care about the rejiggering that happens at the Fed. Don't get me wrong, there'll be some fun things that are going on over there. But another thing to keep in mind too is that not uh, every set of interest uh, or, or debt essentially the bond or the, the, our government has is uh, attached to the interest rates that are being paid today, right? So you got two institutions. You've got our government and then you got the Fed. The Fed is paying money hand over fist in the repo facility. Like they're losing money, right? The government has a lot of their debt uh, that needs to roll into higher yielding debt. And so it basically means the average interest paid is actually still very low for the the U.S. government. In fact, if you look at, here, we can look this up, St. Louis, Fred, uh, debt payments as a percentage of GDP. It's still lower than where we were in the 90s. Interest as a percentage of GDP. All right, so look at this. This chart goes all the way back to the 1940s, right? So going back to the 1940s, What do you have over here? You actually have in the 1990s, our interest rate or or, or the interest we were paying as a percentage of GDP was basically around 3%. So in other words, we're paying 3% of our GDP towards interest. Right now, we're only paying about 1.86% or roughly half uh, of our GDP in interest. Now that is expected to go up but even if it goes back up to the 90s, did we really have an economic calamity in the 90s? Not really. In fact, many say two, 1994 was really aligned with a soft landing. Yeah, you had a technical recession in 91, but it's not one every, ever ta- anyone ever talks about because it's really not that big of a deal. So uh, I think that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. So we'll see, we'll see. Uh, okay, good. So that, uh, that covers some of what's going on in the market. Uh, market rally mode. Now let's go ahead and jump on into, I want to talk about briefly this, um, Fauci paper. And, uh, and, and then we'll do a little more Q&A and then we'll jump into the course member live. So this one will go pretty fast. Let me just make sure I have it ready here. Da-da-da-da-da. Where is my Fauci-ouchie paper? Ah, yeah, here it is. Proximal origin. Okay. Yeah. I think this is really interesting. All right. Ready? This should go fast. Mr. Fauci, oh boy, he has been the topic of a lot, a lot of political attacks and political support. On one, people say he's just the person who tried to do the best with the information he had available. On the other hand, you have people like Elon Musk saying, prosecute Fauci, he lied to Congress. And the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. But today, we've got to look at what the heck is this proximal origin paper that we just got some more insight on from Congress. Let's talk about that because it's a little eyebrow-raising about what maybe goes on behind the scenes at our government and how potentially the media narratives get rigged in favor of whatever the government wants. And I know, I know, there are 50% of you already punching your fists in the air going, come on, Kevin, you didn't already know that. <laughs> oh no, I did. <laughs> but anyway, let me give you a quick little background. So first, it's really important to remember what, what, what gain of function is uh, and how that compares to directed evolution. And I'm going to give a very elementary example. I'm not a biologist or, or whoever would work on this kind of stuff. I'm just going to do my best for you, okay? So my understanding is if you have a virus that can only infect bats, then it has not the function of infecting humans. Now, if you genetically engineer it, You take some, you know, snippets of DNA and you insert it into that virus. And you're like, here, protein fold, some kind of receptacle or whatever that can now land on a human and make them sick. That would be genetic engineering, gain-of-function style research, where basically you have genetically made a virus do something that it could not otherwise do. Okay, that's on one hand, gain-of-function research. On the other hand, there's this thing called directed evolution. And, And the theory here is that rather than taking DNA and trying to screw with the stuff. You're basically trying to let nature do that on its own, but you're doing that in like a rapid and successive manner to kind of get what you want naturally, quote unquote, naturally. So here's an example. Let's say you take a naturally occurring coronavirus that only infects monkeys and not humans, and then you infect five monkeys with it. Now, which of the monkeys is the sickest? which has the strongest form of the virus potentially. Okay, take that monkey and make it infect five more. Repeat this experiment a hundred times. Now you're left a hundred times down that row with the sickest compounded, with the sickest compounded, with the sickest compounded, with the sickest a hundred times as an example here. Now you have something that's probably pretty damn hellish and that potentially could be COVID-19. See, that is an example of how directed evolution could give you something that's really, really deadly uh, compared to something that was originally benign. Now, let's now, so now you have a little bit of background on on sort of the difference of of when gain-of-function is talked about and directed evolution is talked about. Now, we got to look at what's going on with this March of 2020 paper, and what does it have to do with a paper that just came out three years later in March of 2023. So this is interesting. So we know that the FBI, the Department of Energy, and other departments with virologists, I honestly, I don't know why virologists work at the Department of Energy or the FBI. I still haven't figured that out. But there's a reason you have these departments saying, yeah, it's looking, we've got some confidence that uh, COVID came from a lab, right? The lab leak theory, right? Uh, And this is a concern because the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is known for this type of research, this gain-of-function, directed evolution-style research, is described as China's first biohazard level four research facility. And the paper is very important that we're about to look at because it basically poo-poo's the idea that COVID came from a lab. Now, the paper that 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 basically poo-pooed the idea is this right here. This paper is called "The Proximal Origin." of COVID-19. Now, what's really interesting about this paper is that this paper ended up getting cited over 2,300 times in different mainstream media articles and videos. Now, that's a really big deal because that basically means the government put together this paper and then the media ran with it. And when the media runs with it, they're basically just perpetuating what this paper says, without doing any more digging into it, right? Now, that's really important. And so what does this paper say? Well, specifically, it says the following. It is improbable that COVID-19 emerged through laboratory manipulation of coronaviruses. Genetic data irrefutably shows that sars cov 19 whatever, is not derived from any previously used virus backbone. So they're basically trying to poo-poo the idea that this came from a lab, that this likely either came from an animal source or human to human transmission in in sort of a, a, you know, a a natural way, right? This is the natural transmission argument. And uh, it even ends by reiterating, since we observed all COVID unknown coronavirus features, including blah, 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 as it relates to coronaviruses in nature, we do not believe in any type of laboratory-based scenario. But wait a minute. Remember what I just described about directed evolution, where you kind of take a natural uh, COVID, and then maybe you infect monkeys a hundred different times? Well, if you remember high school biology, this coronavirus that you directedly evoluted, boy, I probably butchered that, but whatever, is going to have some genetic markers that are similar to the ones from nature. You've just really accelerated that process 100x. And that's not natural, right? I, I, by taking the const, constantly taking the sickest monkey and infecting the next sickest monkey is not natural. Because in nature, it's entirely possible that a stronger form of the virus would just end up dying out in nature naturally because it has some sort of a weakness that wouldn't otherwise be exposed in a laboratory where you could actually preserve a virus that's not supposed to exist anymore. Okay, so you have this paper that the media runs with march of 2020 promoting that no 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 lab leak theory okay so we have this but what did we just get well we just got a report from the congressional subcommittee on the origins of the coronavirus and in their report in their memo released on friday what did they say well they said the following they said that fauci who knew Uh, the National Institute of Health, had contributed funding to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, this congressional report, or memo, says that the evidence available to the select subcommittee suggests that Fauci prompted the researchers to write the proximal origin paper. And the goal was disprove the lab leak theory. That's not good. Let me make that really clear what that means, okay? What that means is uh, our government, our government, knew they funded the Wuhan Institute uh, to some extent, right? So to some extent, our government knew they funded the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Okay, uh, Fauci uh, was told this, and I believe it was around uh, around Jan 27, 2020. I don't know exactly which date in the 20s, but it was somewhere around here. So our government knew this. Then they decided in March of 2020, let's circulate a brief that disproves the lab leak theory, Uh, and then therefore, the the sort of implied conclusion, and I'm saying implied here, right, because we're guessing, but the implied conclusion here is our government would be really embarrassed if they uh, had to take any blame for COVID much easier to blame China. Kind of interesting, right? So what is, what does that, the rest of that congressional junk say? Well, first of all, they say that evidence available to Congress suggests that Fauci prompted this paper to disprove any lab leak theory. Now notice it's not uh, research to disprove the lab leak theory. It's a paper to disprove the lab leak theory. Now, it'd be one thing if it's like, hey, look, go to China and see if we can disprove the lab leak theory. And if we can't, then we can't, right? It's a paper, however, to disprove the lab leak theory. Uh, And then over here, you have look at this. The goal of the proximal origin paper was to disprove a lab leak theory. Dr. Anderson had objectively weighed all the evidence available to him. And a scientist must make conclusions available by all evidence, whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh, A lot of scientists quietly and privately, apparently on phone calls stated, hey, like what if it's a lab leak theory? But then according to emails, even Dr. Anderson stated, our main work over the last couple weeks has been focused on trying to disprove any type of lab leak theory. The email directly contradicts Scripps' earlier statement that Dr. Anderson objectively weighed all evidence related to COVID. Instead, it appears Anderson was given direction and sought to formulate a paper, regardless of the available evidence, that would disprove a lab leak. This is from Congress. So then you get a little bit of talk about how, uh, well, here's some more quotes here. Uh, Dr. Farrar led the drafting process and made at least one uncredited direct edit to the proximal origin. Uh, This individual is not credited as having any involvement in proximal origin. However, according to new evidence, he led the drafting process and, in fact, made several direct edits. Apparently, right before publication, emails reveal that Dr. Uh, Farah was thanked uh, for editing the document. Thank you for shepherding this paper. Listen to this. Rumors of bioweaponeering are now circulating in China. Dr. Farah responds and says, confirming... That uh, he will be pressuring Nature, which is a, a publication for, for science, uh, and will be pressuring Nature to publish this letter. I will push Nature. In addition to leading the drafting pu- uh, publication process, Dr. Farah made at least one direct ebit, edit to Proximal Origin. On February 17th, the day Proximal Origin was first published publicly, Dr. Farah made an edit to the draft. Sorry to say, micromanage, micro edit, but would you be willing to change one sentence? Uh, and oh, I want to get the rest of that. Hold on, I want to get exactly that, so stand by. I want to get what that one sentence is. It'll take me just a second here. But anyway, uh, what what you're finding, this idea of bioengineering, or bioweaponeering, I should say, which is a lot more scary, this idea is really, uh, you know, at the time that uh, that we had this sort of, uh, dare I say, uh, uh, COVID hysteria uh, circulating uh, governments were trying to do everything in their power to limit this idea that, oh yeah, governments are, are taking tax dollars, like our tax money, and are throwing it at potentially making bioweapons. Like that's extremely concerning and extremely unpopular, right? (laughs) Like I, I don't, I don't think anybody really wants to hear that or think that that's sort of happening. But then again, we also don't want to stick our heads in the sand and assume that that sort of stuff is not happening because clearly to some level it is. Uh, anyway, so uh, this, this full piece from the subcommittee uh, is available online, it's been published. I don't know why my screenshot cut off there, and I hate leaving things on uh, sort of a cutoff like that because, uh, not that I think it really makes a difference, but I'd like to have it because I don't know, know now what the rest of it is, and I want to know it. Uh, okay, well, I don't know that I can get it. Oh wait, no, I have it right, potentially here, so I got their emails. Uh, I've got all their emails. Dang it. No, that's embarrassing. All right, well, darn it. Kevin, this is so annoying. You ruined your video. <laughs> I just want to know what the rest of that says. I'll have to figure it out, and I'll, I'll get to the bottom of exactly what's, what's left in that. But um, let me see if I could just get the title of the report and maybe find it within the next minute here. Stand by one second. So this is the select subcommittee on coronavirus pandemic research. Here we go. Oh, I got it. Finally. God, that took me forever. I'm sorry. Sometimes that happens. But if I see something that I want more answers on, I go find it. Micro. There, I got it. No way, look at this. And here it is. Sorry to micromanage microedit, but would you be willing to change one sentence from it is unlikely COVID emerged from a, uh, through laboratory manipulation, too. It is improbable that COVID emerged from a lab. Look at this. So you have somebody who gets no credits in the writing of Proximal Origin, yet is making these media directives to make the media basically suck on the, the government's, you know what, to say, nope, nope, lab, lab leak is not true. Lab leak is not true. You can Google this yourself. It pops up. It's the first search result. So you can find this yourself. uh, If you just type into Google this. Select subcommittee on coronavirus pandemic members 3 5 It's the first link right there. So you can see it yourself. Look at it yourself. Anyway, thank you so much for being here. I got to go to the course member live stream right now. Goodbye. See you all next time. Bye.